Welcome to Let's Face the Facts. I'm David Almeida, and I'm your host for this rewatch podcast for the classic sitcom, The Facts of Life. I'm an actor in Orlando, Florida, and every week I bring you some of the greatest talent in the Central Florida arts community. Join us as we synopsize, analyze, criticize, and ultimately idolize the show, episode by episode. Hey guys, welcome back. It's another week, another Wednesday, another show. Thank you for downloading and pressing play. My guest this week is Louis Gravance. Louis is an actor, singer, theme park performer, improviser, like so many of my other guests. But in addition to all of those things, Louis, before he came to Florida, had a very active film and television and commercial career in the late 70s, early 80s out in Los Angeles. We'll be talking about that on the show. In more recent times, Louis has become a very popular keynote speaker and earlier this year, a published author with his new book called Service is a Superpower, Lessons Learned in a Magic Kingdom. We watched a real doozy of an episode, had a lot of stuff to discuss. Season 6, Episode 8, EGOC, Edna Garrett on Campus. And the original air date was November 14th of 1984. Let's just do this. Let's jump on in. Let's face the facts with Louis Gravance. Well, Louis Gravance. So nice to see you and have you on the show. Welcome. Nice to see you, David. Wow. You, uh, you are sitting in your perfectly appointed apartment in a smart red sweater and a brilliant holiday green bow tie. You, you dressed up for me. You, you, you look nice for this. I feel bad that I'm, I'm wearing well, my now, in this Zoom era, you know, I mean, I have to, I do a lot of meetings. Mm -hmm. And so because of the whole room raider thing, uh, my husband, John, is taking my background very seriously. And I'm very, like, he sort of produced the background where my book is sort of just, just strategically appointed there and lit. And so we've, we've really been using sort of like the anchors on the news, on cable news as sort of inspiration on what you need in the background. Mm -hmm. No, it's, it is <laughs> deeply impressive. And I feel insanely unprofessional because... Uh, I, I used to have an office, but now I have a roommate there. And uh, right. so at this point, what you get is you get the side of my bed, which I didn't even make the bed. I'm sad I'm really to report. I'm surprised because, you know, I've known you for a long time and I have dressed with you. I mean, we've shared a dressing room and, and mm -hmm. I've always found you to be rather fastidious. So I'm, I, I'm hurried but fastidious, mm -hmm. you know, organized. Yeah, maybe organized is a better. So I, I, I'm going to be candid. I'm not horrified, but I'm surprised <laughs> that. <laughs> I, I normally wouldn't. I normally would have this all looking pristine and prim and proper, but uh, yeah. I've just been running around and I've got a busy week coming up. And well, I mean, you hardly look like a filthy hoarder. So I mean, but I mean <laughs> oh no! If you've come to my house, you'll see that's not the case. But yes. Uh, but uh, I want to talk about yes. your book in a little uh -huh. bit and, uh, oh, and your right. and your your vast, expansive, long, 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 long career. Yeah. <laughs> what but... a polite way of referring to my age. Go ahead. Yes. <laughs> I'm gracious of you. 
But I mean, no, but really, as far as the, the vastness of your career and your work in, in television uh, before being in the theme park world for as long as you were, uh, let's start by, I always ask my guests, did you watch the show when it was on? Did you watch The Facts of Life? Uh, at the beginning, because, so, all right, so uh, it started in 1979. Correct. And that was right when I was, I, I, from about 76 to 82 is when I was dabbling in, in episodic TV. So I, I was aware of it for, if no other reason to potentially gigs. Mm -hmm. uh, now, I, I need to ask, are, are, do you have a great reverence for the show? I do in terms of those shows that you grew up loving, but re-examining right. it as an adult, I'm I'm yes. discovering how often I am so insanely critical of some of the shoddy writing and choices and inconsistencies mm. throughout. It's just the nature of the 1980s sitcom, but uh, the worst. Yeah. Just the and I can tell you. And they were they were made like factor. I mean, it was it was it was it was a, a truly soulless in most cases. Now I was only on four or five of them, and one of them I was on three times. But they were pretty soulless, and especially if children or kids were involved, because in most cases, what I found that what you're seeing the finished product, almost all of it, is pickup shots that are edited to be timed to a beat. So particularly like the kids on what's happening, almost all of it. Yeah, the, the audience would be so upset because they would show up for this thing. Now I did mod and mod was done. They, those people were so freaking good at it. It ran like a play. I mean, bam, bam, bam. They were, they knew it. Okay. But an episode of what's happening could take two and a half to three hours to film. And then after, and so the audience would be two thirds gone by this point. And it yeah. would be shocking to them because they would see just how amateurish this whole, <laughs> the whole thing was. And then after that was over, especially with the, the, the young girl, they would just have to run through the script and, and just get a tight shot of her repeating. And the director would literally give her the line reading. She would repeat it back and cut. And they would and they would cleverly edit the show to make it look like she was much more adept than she, and this happened a lot with kids. This this to be honest with you, this uh, because they weren't rehearsing the same as the adults. You know, th there was a whole different thing in working kids, which is why people like me were hired because I was over 18. Uh, and but you looked younger and you could play the younger right, so roles. We didn't have to do the school thing. Mm -hmm. so so it was a little it, it was it was a little easier but anyway to your earlier point this was the worst period of television oh i mean yeah after we had done all the norman lears and all the the, the stuff of the 70s all the pioneering shows there is a sense and particularly now as we're getting into the later seasons of facts of life of every week was just churn out a script Turn out a one-liner, make Blair be snobby, make Joe be dikey, and and be done with it. Okay, so does your audience know what episode we're talking about? Well, let's actually get to it because uh, we're talking about season six, episode five. Love that segue, Louie. Thank you. Uh, the title is EGOC, also known as Edna Garrett on Campus. 
and the original air date was October 31st of 1984, so happy Halloween. And if you'll permit me to continue with this, it was written by Janice Hirsch. Janice Hirsch, uh, this is the only episode she ever wrote for Facts of Life, but she came to the Facts really? of Life. She came to it with square pegs one day at a time. And because she... it is unusually written. That's inter I didn't know that, but I one of the things I was going to say to you was, it's very atypical of of, of one of the scripts. There, so yes, on, on. there are a lot of uh, anomalies here that I, I can't wait to discuss. There's a lot of new first time things being uh, peppered in now because the show is about to make a big turn at the beginning of season seven when they go out of the bakery and it becomes the Spencer's Gifts and they really turn hard into that uh, that uh, wave of 1980s aesthetic. But uh, Janice Hirsch would also go on to write for It's Gary Shandling's show. So she was way too cool for this writing room. <laughs> exactly. But then, what you're she, telling me. Okay. well, even too cool for being a writer, she would then go on to both produce and write a ton of shows, including, but not limited to, Day by Day, The Nanny, Murphy Brown, Frasier, Bet the Bet Midler sitcom, My Wife and Kids, Eight Simple Rules, Will and Grace, um, and not that this was a big show, but I put in Till Death. Do you remember Till Death? No, I do not. That was the I I would say short lived 2010 sitcom that starred Brad Garrett, post Raymond, and Jolie Fisher, post Ellen. Oh, I'm vaguely aware of it, but yeah, yeah. No, I, I didn't, I didn't watch. I put it in because it ran four seasons, 89 episodes. It did? That's one of those, like, according to Jim, where you're like, how the fuck was that on that long? Right. It's crazy. Right, right, right. So Janice Hirsch went on to be a very prolific producer slash writer of uh, episodic television. And Louie, fun fact, Janice Hirsch went to Rollins College right here in Winter Park, Florida. Well, there you go. Mm -hmm. As did a former guest and dear friend of ours, Miss Heather Leonardi. Yes, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the episode was directed by John Boab, B-O-W-A-B, it's a weird name. This is only the second episode he has directed. The first episode he directed, Louis, was uh, three weeks ago. It was called Cruising. And it was just them in a car driving through town cruising. It had no soundstage, no audience, no laugh track. It was a completely different episode than anything they had done before or since. Mm. So this is technically his first time in the studio. But the thing is, John Boab would go on to become the in-house director. And he would, uh, I think he, he does close to 100 of close to half of the total episodes of the facts of life are directed yeah. by him so this is the early years of what would become pretty much his sitcom well, you're very well versed oh, i have this thing called the internet louis i'll show it to you sometime mm -hmm. um and then the title comes egoc what a horrible title edna garrett on campus and you know what that is referring to no i do not the term that used to be used, and I think it was an old-fashioned term already by the 80s, was BMOC, Big Man on Campus. Yeah. And so the idea is that they're doing a wordplay on that. Well, this is EGOC. 
Edna Garrett on campus. Huh? <laughs> okay, all right, all right, all right, all right. Okay. But had, well, had you heard right. of Big Man on campus? Yeah, well, sure, sure. Yeah. Had you ever heard it described as BMOC? No. Yeah. I I had somehow somewhere, <laughs> certainly wasn't when I was in college, and it was certainly never a term used to describe me. Mm-hmm. But um, but before we get into the, the microscopic synopsis, you already uh, alluded to the fact that there was a time you were working in the television field. My next question was going to be, it's 1984. Where were you in all this? What was your path? I just, I had just become too hairy to play kids on TV. So <laughs> it, it all... It all came crashing down. I was doing a Mattel toy commercial and uh, <laughs> playing with, with this toy with these guys on a playground. And anyway, they had to stop the shoot because when we went in for the product shot, the director said it looked like three kids in a Hobbit put their hand in. <laughs> so that's sort of, I th- I always think of that as it marking the end of, of, of <laughs> I, I, I did, very few so then okay so then david i did something very desperate because you know tv is very cruel to people who do that try to make this transition from playing teenagers to something else mm-hmm. it's, it's it's yeah so um you know i was for example i was acquaintances with uh quinn cummings who was um oh, up for an yeah. oscar for the goodbye girl yeah yeah okay okay so um she was younger than me of course but she was typical of of an of acquaintance I had in the business who puberty was just terribly cruel. Mm. And they went from being adorable and needed to, you know, being able to actually feel palpably feel the fact that they were not wanted. And it was uh, it was rough. So you'd, you'd go through this period of reinvention. So to me, David, I thought the best idea would be to shave my head <laughs> to get my ear pierced and sort of do this sort of Adam ant eyeliner thing. And this proved to not be a good idea. And <laughs> I went to pick up a residual check at my agent's office, 1717 Highland, but I didn't want him to see the haircut. So I'm wearing a hat, which was odd. So long story short, they call me into the office. They asked me to take the hat off and immediately press of buttons where they announce to all the agents that I am no longer available for <laughs> interviews until my hair grows out. Oh, so oh, no. then, then this is always the pivotal moment of my failure. I always think this is the bottom of my career is I went downstairs to cash that residual check and already feeling very self-conscious about this look I was trying to pull off. And the, the teller who I'd known for years the, the bank teller, as I, as I pass the check over for her to cash, she looks at me with these really sad eyes and she goes, <laughs> what are you so angry about? And I realized I was just a fraud, man. I was just, it was just, <laughs> it was just ridiculous. So to answer, that was a very long way to answer your question. In 1984, I had just started being a waiter at night at the Stuart Anderson, Anderson's Black Angus restaurants because I had saved no money and couldn't play kids anymore. Wow. Now, where so that's did the, what I was doing. <laughs> and, and where did the, the Mellow Yellow commercial come in? That's the big thing I've shared with so many people. Uh, let's I see, feel like you were older during that. that. Well, I was. I mean, for, for playing a kid in high school, I think it was 23. Mm-hmm. So, so that, that would have been about 82. Oh, okay. 80, oh, so that was that's that is earlier than I, I thought it was. Uh, yeah. Okay. 
Man. So um, the did that toy commercial ever make it to air? Is that is that on YouTube with your Hobbit hands? You know, most of my commercials I cannot find on YouTube. And I did. I wish I had the dramatic ones. Like I did one of those where like the the uh, the one I really wish I could find is the one where I was walking home and the dog was following me and we pick up the mail and it's apparently something telling me I'm going to go to med school. And I go running in slow motion to the house and my father, who is recently crippled, has the nationwide insurance blanket over his newly wounded legs. And and I was to run up and hand him the letter. And then they would talk about here on nationwide insurance. You need to blah, 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 blah. And then he'd look at me at the end, and we both would have tears in our eyes. And he'd go, "A doctor," and I'd go, "Yeah, a doctor." And then this music would play out, and I so freaking wish I had that one. <laughs> but um, they save that shit. Then they did. They really didn't. No. And that's it. It might be found somewhere on a VHS tape. Um, I'll ask my friend Ken Reed. He's got a lot of VHS tapes that he's picked up over the years that are, you know, like a movie of the week where they recorded them with the commercials. I'll ask him like, if I he's- I was in the last Singing McDonald's commercial. You know, those the ones where all the people that worked in there. I was in the very last people that work at McDonald's supposedly doing a musical number in, in, in the restaurant. I was in the last one. Wow. That is amazing. That's when the song was, nobody can do it like McDonald's can. Oh, so we yeah. All, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. That was. Those are the last singing ones. The, the swan song, as it were. Okay, wow. But anyway, we've gone way off and I'm so sorry. But well, no, no, we have not gone that way off because, because uh, during but the. But to your thing about the writing of this thing, uh, mm -hmm. of this episode, what I found interesting about the episode was that the episode was performed in a truly lazy fashion. I think the girls are just really phoning it in by this point, except for Ms. Ray. But I thought it was an unusually difficult to write episode with all the Shakespearean references. And I thought, I thought this is, I don't really recall this show written this way. So I think it's interesting that you say it, it, it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it wasn't. This was, and, and that's it. And there are parts of it that is, it's different in a good way and it's different in a bad way. And uh, particularly directorially, that's where I, I do see a lot of differences from what we've seen before. So Louis, the next thing I always like to do is put my guest on the spot and ask if you would please give a one to two sentence synopsis of the show we just watched, similar to the listing like you might see in a TV guide. With the encouragement of the girls, Mrs. Garrett attempts a comeback at college. There you go, there you that, go. That was great, no, perfect. And uh, so, so many people overthink it and so many great improvisers like yourself find themselves stumbling and stammering when I ask him to do it. It's so funny. Well, because you really do need to, to, to throw in the Shakespeare thing because it is a pivotal part. Mm -hmm. There are so many Shakespearean references and, and Shakespearean, mm -hmm. well, pieces of dialogue lifted and performed, you know, terribly, but, <laughs> but. Okay, well, we'll know, get into it's it. Pretty heady, it's pretty heady. I think so too. I think so too. So we begin the episode at the shop in Edna's Edibles. 
Mrs. Garrett is working. Tootie and Natalie are kind of watching along and lending moral support. They're not doing anything to help Mrs. Garrett. They're not lending any workforce support. They're just there chilling because... Well, they rarely are, really, but go ahead. Truly, yeah. But they could have, depending on... Um, you know, they could have given them a plate of croissants or some quiches or something, but mm-hmm. um, but they're very interested in watching Joe and Blair going through the course guide and choosing their courses for this semester at college. And yet every scene is really laden with Joe and Blair. Of There's there's always that sexual tension, isn't there, oh. really, that, that Joe deeply wants <laughs> Blair and... And I thought that there was some real overt lesbian, like, ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening at all, we're trying to let you know <laughs> Joe is a ripening lesbian. And that's what's happening. So uh, go ahead. Yeah, no, it's all throughout. And we've we've cited that so many times on on this on this podcast. But but I, they make her use the term sens- sensible shoes. Uh, they, in this. Yes. Oh yes, indeed. Uh, so this is the eighth episode of the season. So it's the 10th episode they taped. They broadcast them out of order. So mm. what the fuck is happening with them picking classes eight weeks into the new semester? Because we know school has already started. That was there and established in episode one of season six. Why are we picking classes now? Or at the very least, they could have been doing it in January after this, the Christmas. This is your biggest issue with the conceit of the show? Oh, Louie, this, this is, this is, <laughs> this wow. is the tip of the iceberg. We have so many more things, okay. so many more things okay. to talk okay. about. But Natalie notices a course called Gimme Shakespeare. And it's mm-hmm. this course by this uh, innovative professor. And uh, he's so innovative and teaches Shakespeare with such a different bent to it. Mm-hmm. He's even been seen on the way to one of his lectures dressed as Lady Macbeth. <laughs> so much, again, so much code. Yeah. So <laughs> he's different in a roll of the eyes. There was so much code. What they're basically telling you is he's gay. Yeah. And uh, or, if or not- at least a cross-dresser for fun. Yeah, it's true. It's so true. And so very quickly, we find out Mrs. Garrett has also been going over this course schedule. And mm-hmm. she's actually been thinking of taking a class. Sneakily, Sneakily quite. Yes. Other, you know. Yeah. You know. And but then she just, you know, they're like, oh, do you have interest in what do you, what's the deal with that? And she says that she has been thinking about getting her degree. Right. That's all she says getting her degree. She made right. a promise to herself and she's going to keep it. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. On this show, Louis, we have covered the fact that Mrs. Garrett has been, uh, she was in the Peace Corps for many years. She was at one time a cab driver. She was the maid to the Drummonds on different strokes. She's been the house mother in a dorm. She's been a dietitian, restaurant manager, now is a business owner of a gourmet food store. Truly a Renaissance woman. Yes, exactly. And just because they needed some way to get Mrs. Garrett, the house mother involved in the sex ed episode in season one, they suddenly drop out of nowhere that she's a registered nurse. To, to, to your point, she truly is, I mean, well, because besides being a role model, I mean, she's so multi-talented. Uh, and, 
and always has the time to keep her hair impeccably done and the roots impeccably taken oh. care of. Oh, you, we've talked about the hair so many times. But uh, the thing, the point I was wanting to make is that uh, she says, I always promised myself I would get my degree. It's like, um, I know it was for one episode and it has never been revisited again. But if you are a registered nurse or at one time were, that's a degree. You need a degree, at least an associate's to be a registered nurse, oftentimes a bachelor's. Okay, now I am going to, I now see, this is where I don't think you've done enough research. I'm, oh, I'm sorry, hit me, hit I'm me, Louie. I'm going to tell you that in those days, there were what were called LVNs. My mother, in fact, I'm not lying, was an LVN, which meant you could be a practicing nurse, in fact, without any kind of degree at, at all. And my mother was, in fact, one of those people. Hence, one of the reasons she was always chasing me around with uh, a needle. All right. I've heard of an LPN, a licensed practicing nurse. What is LVN? In stand those for? days, it was called a licensed vocational nurse. Oh. And you could be one and you could pretty much do anything um, or most things that nurses could do, um, but you did not have a degree. So my guess is if I were a betting man, Mrs. Garrett was an LVN. Well, if she was, and she could have been, <laughs> then she is lying on her resume because she says to Mr. Bradley explicitly, I am a registered nurse. That is okay, the line. You, that is technical. Then, she, then she, one way or the other, she's lying. She's either lying about. <laughs> she's a liar. She's a liar. Let's face it. And her resume is just completely freaking padded. Yeah, I'm beginning to think this character might be fictional, Louis. This is nuts. But <laughs> the thing is, there was an episode where she had some financial thing happen in when she was the dietitian at the school and it became uh she was falling short of her responsibilities because she wasn't making enough money as a dietitian because she was working as a restaurant manager on the graveyard shift overnight and oh. i'm just like you couldn't go to a doctor's office and say, uh, I'm a registered nurse. Will you please pay me likely more than a dietitian would make at a girl's college? Yeah, I need to pick up some hours. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As an RN, a registered nurse. Uh, All right. You make okay. a point. I've, I have made my point and a I love that. A one, but a point. No. <laughs> God, I miss you so much, Louie. <laughs> Fuck me. I miss you so much. It is a lot like the dressing room, but go ahead, please. In in the best way. In the best way. Houses. This is making my heart so happy. So the scene pretty much goes on with the girls encouraging her to say, well, do it. If you said you wanted to do this and you're you're interested, now is the time. And she's like, oh, but I'm running a business. And I'm thinking, yeah, and the business is only a year and a half old what the fuck? Like she needs more to do. Just a, a couple weeks ago, she had been talking about going to her diet club, meaning a Weight Watchers meeting. And then she was complaining the following week about her bridge partner had moved out of town and she was trying to make Tootie into her next bridge partner. It's like, you have time to play bridge. You have time to go to Weight Watchers while you're also trying to run this business where clearly nobody works. Now let's go back to school. That seems like a perfectly rational, reasonable thing to layer on top of that. Or more realistically, she just, she has sort of a dependency on the girls and anywhere they go, she feels she has to be. Maybe yeah, it, that's really what's going on here. 
she never really had a dream of going to school. It's what like, oh, you're going to that restaurant? I always wanted to go to that restaurant when you never even heard of the freaking restaurant. Maybe that's what's really going on in, in the opening scene and we're just not seeing it. It could be. I mean, she has only lived with them for five years and shares a bathroom with them. And, you know, I'm, right. I'm sure she's like, I cannot get enough of these bitches. Right. So um, Tootie and Natalie offer to watch the shop again mm -hmm. how 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 where is your extra time you're commuting already from where you live here to a boarding school where you could be living so i don't know where tootie and natalie are getting the extra time but they offer to help and good fine that helps so but that's because i think we're, we're, we're still missing a heavy point which is how condescending a bitch blair is from the first freaking second that this whole topic comes up oh it's, continue oh yeah you should be so cute for you to do this mm -hmm. oh go, 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 go. where the other girls i, I feel are are are, uh, are a little more sincere about it where blair is just like i, I just think she's a condescending she's throughout she's like in fact she gets some dirty looks several times throughout the episode <laughs> where you know that what what uh charlotte ray is thinking is you bitch yeah you bitch, how dare you i've seen <laughs> i've forgotten more than you've ever learned you little bitch and you did anyway <laughs> i think i think that's what's going on that's what i'm seeing in her eyes like every time she says oh you were so cute today in class and then they do they show this this you know this close-up of charlotte ray's eyes getting sort of glassy and mean like i'll mm -hmm. kill you i'll cut you totally will cut you <laughs> If we I have making so much money on this freaking show. One, I have forgotten more than you have ever learned. I've never heard that as a cut down. That is amazing. <laughs> that is fucking genius. But um, so it's decided. Mrs. Mrs. Garrett is going to do the college thing, and she's going to take this gimme Shakespeare course as sort of her dipping her toe into the pool. And you know what I love about college, Louis. When you decide Tell to me. start going, you can just the next day get into a line yes. and get a card and you are suddenly now a student at right. an accredited college university. This is not a community college where any Tom, Dick or Harry can can take a course. This Blair and Joe had to apply and this was... Um, Wouldn't RNs really be put to the front of the line? I mean... <laughs> wouldn't... But Blair listed off I believe two other very well-known, respected colleges. And I, I can't think of, I think one of them was Brown and mm -hmm. I forget the other. It wasn't, they weren't Ivy League, but they were the sort of the next tier. And Langley, this fictional college in Peekskill, New York was one of them. So it was like of the quote unquote good schools that Blair got into, she decided and picked this one. And yet they have Mrs. Garrett just walking in like, hey, I want to I want to be a college student. And they're like, yeah, cool. Mm -hmm. Come on in. No application process. No <laughs> interview. It's like, what? Well, maybe they had a quota, David. Maybe they had a quota and 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 her being a senior citizen or almost a senior citizen, you know, put her to the head of some sort of quota line. I mean, it's not completely out of the. But the next day, though. My thing is that the timetable, you could you could argue that and you could justify it, but the timetable is what shatters all of those arguments. Because believe me, I do try to justify and give the writers the benefit of the doubt. And I, I rarely am able to do so, it seems. But moving into this next scene now, this is a couple of brand new 
like, oh, directorial uh, aesthetic choices for the show. Number one, we have music during the transition and we never have music. We haven't had that since season one. For the most part, this has been like any really? other any other Norman Lear show, like your mods or your All in the Families, it would just transition and dissolve to the next scene and you would have no music. Well, that's true, yeah. Yeah, the later seasons, they would add it back in. But at this point, we have not heard music in five years. It's been mm -hmm. season one. So we have a little bit of interstitial music and we also have an exterior shot. We've never seen Langley College. We never knew what it looked like. And the show has, other than that initial exterior shot of the Eastland School in the very first episode of the first shot of the first season, we we never have seen any of the buildings. We we barely know what the outside of Edna's Edibles looks like. Mm -hmm. And I actually, I don't think we know yet. I think there is one coming up where they do start the episode with a sort of exterior, but um, yeah, so but this is- But as you point out, this is not an Ivy League school. This is sort of an upper middle class kind of affair. But, but it's upper, it's like Brown and, is Brandeis Ivy League? I have no idea. Um, I feel like it, it wasn't that, oh, shit, it's gonna drive me crazy because I should know this off the top of my head because I brought it up multiple times, but. Okay, the deal is, um, we are we are now inside this building at Langley. It's the line to register for courses and they're, everyone there is trying to get a spot in the class that they want. And uh, I have to tell you, this brought back some, I, I had some PTSD myself mm -hmm. as far as being in college, waiting in line and having to stand there, hoping you're getting into the course that you want. And ugh. did you ever go through that process? I only went to college twice for about eight hours at a time. <laughs> so I, I, I went to college and I went I, at the time, Los Angeles City College had this little artistic acting school academy that you could audition. Anyway, I got in from high school. I got in and went right, right to it. So, OK, but you have to remember I was a punk and you have to re remember I was already making money as an actor. Oh. So I go in and I'm t I take this acting class. And the, you know, the college professor was a, was a prick. And especially to somebody that had walked in, you know, when it was always working, you know, I needed to sort of be cut down. And it was really like, so we're going to start with acting like monkeys. And I was like, bite me. I got residual checks to cash. And so, <laughs> but then, so I was an asshole. So then I tried again the next year and took a makeup class, but I, I just, I, I was too hyperactive. So I, I didn't, um, and plus I had to work. I was yeah. working, you know, I had, I had a pound the freaking, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. But you let know. me tell you, this is a very common part of Plus what I had I bars to go to at the time. I had, you know, I had other things to do besides go to college. I had, a, you know, I was, I was being passed around like a carton of cigarettes in prison. At that time. <laughs> so I had, I had other things that I was working about. Uh, Los Angeles in the late seventies, early eighties. right. Pre-AIDS. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, uh, the, the, I, I, having experienced this, the standing in line, it is awful. It is the fucking worst in terms of 
you have you have the courses that you know you need to take to get your degree in the way you've mapped out how you're gonna get there after four years and it's like well i need this class or i want this particular class and then you find you're fighting with hundreds of other students and it's like you know it's like being in a traffic jam on a road where you're like this road has been a congested disaster for 20 years why have they not widened this fucking road why don't they offer this class in more units or more modules so that they can get more bodies clearly it's popular so it was just always a, a source of frustration and, and scrambling to pull together credits because uh, if you didn't have enough you couldn't stay in school so clearly this scene is really attacking much more profound ground than any of us really just pondered you know what <laughs> it is. you're expressing is that it's really a pivotal moment in life that's that's just that's being presented but it shouldn't be taken lightly that I, even though it's seemingly all you need is a five by eight card with yes name on this it. magical if, card if you get it into the dish yeah. <laughs> i will bet in the outtakes at one point the lights dim and sally struthers steps in front and says people stand in line for college courses that they don't get every semester won't you please help <laughs> there's a very good chance that this uh -huh. <laughs> but um so they're waiting in line and it's like so mrs garrett is certainly continuing to express her apprehension and she does mention that her feet are hurting her a bit and uh they say yeah you need to you know when you're standing in line you might want to wear something and joe says uh you can do this but for standing in line you need sensible shoes which is a wink wink and a nod to everybody mm -hmm. out there because that used to be code for she's a lesbian yeah someone was wearing she wears sensible shoes yeah that was like <laughs> in the 50s they'd say is he musical and that was that was did it, have you ever read that like rock hudson's book they'd go is he musical yeah and that was the same exactly. thing is he like, is he close with his mother? Shoes? Yeah. Right. That's like exactly. saying. Does, exactly. does he butter his bread on the other side? Well, come on. And this time she's wearing the, the men's tie. The fashion. Louis, we are, this is the perfect time to talk about what she is wearing because it is lesbotastic. Uh, Blair is wearing what I always call her Dorothy Michaels costume. So Blair clearly has an eating disorder. You think so? Oh, come on. Where yeah, do you get that on. from? Oh, come on. I just think it's written all over. I just think just just to, the, the, the I think the whole body image thing that Blair has, I think I think there's I think there's total bulimia. Yeah, there. yeah. She she would have been one of the girls, certainly that did that, certainly when right. it, when it was fashionable in the 80s. You know, she had some seasons where she was heavier and the producers gave her hell for it. Like she was constantly having weigh-ins and them sending her to fat farms and yeah, it was it was a bad situation that Lisa Welchel is uh, unnecessarily very gracious when she talks about it in hindsight. Yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. But then Mrs. Garrett is dressed in a nice smart teal dress and this gorgeous, bright magenta winter coat. Car with coat? A... Would you say a car coat? I, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's not like- anyway, a... She looks pretty sharp. She, she does. does. She looks great. And that color striking. And we've said many times before, whatever Charlotte Ray's color palette is, the bright ones look great on her when they do uh, brighter, saturated, technicolor stuff like that. But then we have this bizarre moment where in the midst of Mrs. Garrett having doubts about going back to school, but 
not really having addressed it as being an age thing yet. It did mm -hmm. come up briefly. But this other woman walks up to her and they stop short and stare at each other because the yes. woman is wearing the same coat. So it has that, you know, like the My Fair Lady Ascot scene where the two women mm -hmm. have the same gown and it's the, oh, we wore the same outfit to the party. Mm -hmm. But she also has a red updo. She also, uh, I think that the attempt was to have this be like a younger mirror version of Mrs. Garrett, of her seeing her younger self. Maybe a time when she should have done this. Maybe the time when she... Likely in the life when this would have been a better idea. Yeah, but here's the funny thing is that because this is a younger woman, uh, presumably a student at the college, she has got under the coat these big bright fluorescent colors. Uh, she's wearing bright yellow gloves. She's got big uh, chunky jewelry and she's wearing high heels and socks. And it's kind of a sort of a Cindy Lauper-ish themed look kind of going on. And, but she gives Mrs. Garrett this weird look as she puts on her super awesome 80s sunglasses and then walks away slowly. But there's this, it's just a weird moment. And I'm, the best I can come up with is what they were trying to create was this, her seeing her younger self. But it doesn't work because in 1984, a 20 year old college student still looks like a 50 year old secretary nowadays. Mm -hmm. especially with that hair or maybe it was the younger girl seeing where she was going maybe maybe but you know maybe, maybe that's that that's the moment of recognition but to be honest with you i found the moment weird and i didn't get it yeah no you're you're right this is me trying to <laughs> trying to add a lot to it to give them the benefit of the doubt <laughs> I, I didn't get it here's how they could have fixed it they could have had her walk up and instead of it just being this silent moment pass um uh, she she could have looked at her and said, wow, what is your major? Or something to the effect of, how long does it take see, to get out of this school? This, I almost would have rather... Scholars would talk for years about what that point was. But, <laughs> but I'm like, my thing is, like, they, they could have done, for, for all the bad jokes, it's not like they were like, well, we have nothing we could write here. All I could think of was that, or then it should have just been a literal old lady, like like a Mel Brooks, the producer's old lady in an old lady costume kind of a thing. And have Charlotte Ray realize that, you know, I, I think I'm I think I'm older than that woman kind of a thing. I, I don't know. It's it's just I think I think the the long and short of our 45 minute analysis of this moment is it was weird. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so she does say still the business is like her child. She feels like she's abandoning it. It's only been a year and a half and a mother shouldn't do that to her child. And then there's a question whether there are enough slots in the class and turns out Mrs. Garrett doesn't get one, but then she does get one. Yay. Mm -hmm. So it is on. And then we actually get. She's, she's but it's very tortured because she wants to. She doesn't want to. Yeah. You know, Blair wants her there. Blair doesn't really want her there. Um, yeah. And you know, if she know, hadn't gotten it, she would have been like, yeah, that was probably for the best. Yeah. And they offer, one of them offers, you know, the, their card to get in the class. But you know that neither one of them really means it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like right. when somebody offers to pick up the check but you know that they're thinking please god i don't want to pick up this. you know it's, <laughs> i'm it's, just doing oh, this Mrs. yeah Garrett, 
please take my place in the class. And it's like, come on, Blair. We yeah. know you're much more selfish than that. You'll kill her. Yeah, no. <laughs> So then we move into the next scene where we get to experience this magical class, Gimme Shakespeare. And we have this teacher, this professor. Um, I, <clears throat> this professor, I think he was magnificent as an actor. The character mm. is oddly written, but I think what he does with it and his commitment level, I really enjoyed it. What did you think? Now, they've already established that this guy sometimes wears dresses, okay? Yeah. So what you're seeing there is an acceptable way to be gay on TV at that time, mm -hmm. which was to be masculine yet flamboyant, mm -hmm. wildly flamboyant. So that was how you could get away with some. So clearly he was gay. And that, but that's, you know, you, you didn't, they didn't get Charles Nelson Riley for stuff no. like that. Oh, God. Had a no. guy like that who was quasi handsome. Yeah. Who was not at a glance effeminate, but every gesture was broad and exaggerated. And, you know, and, and, and you know, he's down on one knee. So, so he was, um, he was quote unquote flamboyant, which in those days was quote unquote mm -hmm. Tony Randall, which was quote unquote gay. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm surprised at one point they didn't slip in a, well, you know, I did do King Lear at the Syracuse Playhouse back in 72. The, the idea that he is, he is a performer. This is not an instructor. This is, this is not a lecture. This is a performance. And, right. uh, you know, playing again, playing that, oh, he's a, he's a very theatrical guy. Y you know right. what I'm right. saying? Yeah. Yes. I, but, another code. Yeah. Oh, God. Yes, totally. Yeah. Um, so the actor's name is Clive Revel or Re Revel. I think it's Revel. R-E-V-I-L-L. -L. Do you know he who Clive Revel is? Stage credits, I believe. Huge. Not just his stage credits, Louis. Uh, he has 190 credits on IMDb. He is still alive. He is 90 years old. Don't think he's still working, but he is still alive. And uh, yeah, no, no, very decorated. A lot, a lot of movies and TV appearances. Um, but what, what is you, you, you? There's recognition in your face. Is there something specifically Isn't he like in the original Broadway cast of Oliver? Oh, was he? Clive Rivet. He's on some original cast albums. Uh, Oliver. He was Fagin in Oliver. There you go. See, I knew it. Oh. I knew it that that I I you know, sort of like I saw the name and it was like I've seen that on an album cover and I thought Oliver yeah I thought I I thought he was in Oliver wow so he was the original Fagin in 1963 yeah. uh, did he get a Tony for that um he was nominated but did not win for Oliver he also was nominated for uh, Irma Laduce in 1961 previous mm -hmm. to that. So, I mean, that makes sense. That's Fagin is, I could see him playing that role. It's, it's a magnificently big, you've got to pick a pocket or two kind of a thing for him. But Louis, his, uh, we don't have stage credits when you look at IMDb. The IMDb credit that leapt out at me was that in 1980, he was the original emperor in The Empire Strikes Back in the Star Wars movies. He was? In episode five, we only see the emperor as a projected uh, uh, holographic head. 
huh. and Darth Vader, Darth Vader kneels before him and they have a right. conversation huh. about Luke Skywalker. Then the character was changed over to Ian McDermott in episode six. And then when George Lucas did his facelift on all of the movies in the 90s, uh, Clive Revel was removed as the Emperor and they put in Ian McDermott so that it would all match. But yeah, he it's... has other British Brit film credits, though, I think. Oh, well, uh, 190 <laughs> film and like, TV. I think it's a major like, like, oh, yeah, he's that. Uh, yeah, but I, I mean, anyway, uh, yeah. No, there, so. there is a ton. And it's almost like for all the credits I listed of our writer, I could probably be here another hour talking about him. But he is genuinely I love him in this episode. I think he is great. So uh, to sort of show this, uh, this renegade teaching style of his, because they're studying Romeo and Juliet, we're going to play a game of family feud, the Capulets versus the Montagues. Ho ho! Mm -hmm. And so they bring up students to play the different parts in the, in the show. And this is the way he's finding out what they know and what they've learned. Uh, and it's actually a cute little segment, little sequence. Joe gets to be the scoreboard holding up the signs and all that. And I've got to say, my favorite moment of this performance is when he puts down the two call bells to be the buzzers for the two people facing off. And he holds the cards and leans down on the table, now taking on the physicality of Richard Dawson on Family Feud. And I'm like, that is eerie. Because I never really thought of, you know, stand, give me a physicality that says Richard Dawson. I would be like, um, putting my tongue in the mouth of a 14-year-old girl? Uh, well, he makes reference to that later. To the kissing, yes, I should be kissing, kissing you, but, yeah. but yeah. But the fact is that when he has the cards and he leans down and is like, all right, top people surveyed, up on the board, top five answers, and, and beautifully done. I'm like, bravo, sir, to find a- Something, the, the script of this is much stronger and literate than most, I mean, that, that was a lot of trouble to write that. No, yeah. There was, you know, there was a lot of, you know, all those Shakespearean references, and 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 that, I, I don't. Again, I think this episode is strangely well written. I don't think it's well performed, but I think <laughs> it's strange. I think it's strangely well written. That those parts of it, I think they are. My thing is always getting locked into the into the 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 sloppy mechanics of how we get there. If we could have somehow better justified how Mrs. Garrett could go from, uh, I'm thinking about going to school to being in a class two days later, right? Th things like that. That's the stuff that I get so fixated on because but I'm like, yeah, it's not hard. She's a sneaky liar. She's a sneaky liar because <laughs> clearly she, as we find out, she was looking at the girls brochures without their knowledge. Yeah. She was looking at all their stuff. The classes that were available she knew what teachers were there so clearly she was being dishonest so who knows how long that she had planned this <laughs> and that's that's the only answer is that how do you go from zero to college student in two days she had already registered she had already sent it, it in that like application it was a total eve harrington kind of thing <laughs> it was you know Maybe this speaks to the tension between her and Blair. Oh. And then, you know, why Blair didn't really want her at the school and was so condescending because there was <laughs> going to be this internal competition between them. They both want to be cast as Dolly in the high school production of Hello, Dolly. And there would have been a real, I mean, the college production of Hello, Dolly. And it would have been <laughs> ugly between Blair and, and Mrs. Garrett. Because Mrs. Garrett would have been better for the role. Oh, yeah. But still, 
Blair would have felt entitled to it, being the self-entitled bitch that Blair is. <laughs> Between episodes of Vomiting Cake. Wow. She would have felt <laughs> well, bulimia aside, back to our, our family feud game. Uh, at one point, we get to Mrs. Garrett, and she can't remember the answer. She's trying. She's like, oh, I, I know what I know. Eh, timer, buzzer, timeout. And, of course, typical sitcom. It's like, I'm in a class. I got one answer wrong. I am devastated. Yes. And very quickly, we see by the expression on her face that she's crestfallen and thinking that maybe her doubts were founded. That she It's like Cervantes' not... mirror has been held up and she sees herself <laughs> as she really sort of like a man of La Mancha moment where <laughs> it's just, just by getting this one thing it is it's like Cervantes mirror and she wow she, it's it's too much it's too much real well we are at the commercial break Louie and the commercial break is where <laughs> I like to do a little bit of an interview with my guests and learn about you and your career and we've kind of conveniently uh, skimmed along some of the bits and pieces of it here. But if you'll allow me to ask you, where were you originally born and how did you originally get into performing? I was born in Hanford, California, which is an agricultural community in Central California. It was actually a teacher's idea that I'd get involved in acting because I wanted to be an Imagineer for Disney and I would send them uh, drawings of rides that I wanted to build one day when I grew up and they were so sweet back then they would send these letters with the letterhead and the and, and the and it was wed enterprises well yeah yeah Lines, Disney and somebody would literally have typed the letter and they made reference to what you said in your letter and when you brought those to school man for show and tell you were the freaking deal so I I really wanted to be an Imagineer but a teacher got me in this play and you know i um at a very young age it was very i was very um what's the word uh analytical and i realized that i uh was never going to be a great draftsman i was never going to have the training i was never going to be a really really good artist or draftsman but i might be able to be a really really good actor and so i pivoted and uh, I got involved in some big shows at a very young age. My parents saw me at 15 in a production of Hello, Dolly! with some television stars. And from then on, everybody became very um, positive. And I was living in Hollywood as still as a minor with my first lover. Um, and so, in fact, he had to sign for me to do my first commercial. And wow. I, was when I had a lot of luck fast. I mean, I wasn't in Hollywood more than a few weeks. And I had an agent. I marched right into this agent and because I was too stupid to be afraid. Yeah. And, uh, said, and you were, I mean, yeah. you are, how tall are you? Five, two. You're five, two. So that is the ideal when you have a cute five, two teenager, like you say, you can, you can play younger. You, you were playing teenagers well into your twenties, you said, right? Deep into my twenties. So, um, so, you know, I was really blessed with like, fast but it did not prepare me for when it ended and uh and i realized at one point that i'd never played an adult on stage and then i realized i hadn't been playing one off stage and so wow. losing everything and having to be a waiter and how i managed to be a waiter in a huge restaurant in la and be the only one that was gay and the only one that was interested in acting I was the only person in this huge restaurant that wanted to be the center square on Hollywood squares. I was the only, Wow! So suddenly I was around people who were not in the industry 
and people who are not gay. And suddenly I learned how to make different kinds of people laugh. And not only that, but I learned what I wrote about service. I mm. learned the power of service. And I learned that by treating the guests, you know, and it was metaphysical. I had been involved in A Course in Miracles and, and I just really thought the way to get back on track is to serve. And so I walked around that restaurant like I worked at Disneyland. And then after five years, I was just about to get my own Black Angus restaurant and be a manager. And I went to that program and I get a call. Do you want to come work at Disneyland? Oh. I want to be a singing mortician outside of the haunted mansion and, oh. and keep the guests entertained while they wait in line. So I go, okay, so it's my first day. And they have me in this top hat and tail. It's fantastic outfit. This like yieldy, you know, uh, 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 um, undertaker outfit and gloves. And I mean, it spats on my shoes and it's my first day working at Disneyland and I freaking march out of dressing room, which was behind pirates and you walk to the haunted mansion and I go marching out there and I, and I just, I'm there. I want to dazzle guests. I want to be Disney. And so there's this man and his little girl in a stroller and I bend over and say, hello. And the little girl looks at me like, what the, and the father goes, you know who that is, honey. You know Jiminy Cricket. <laughs> and so then, <laughs> so I didn't know what to do. So I go, well, sir, nice to see you. <laughs> walk away. And I head off to the Haunted Mansion. Okay, so this was the first day anybody was doing this. And no one had told anyone in operations that a zany mortician was going to show up in the middle of the oh. queue line and start singing when the crypt goes creak and the tombstones quake. So I walk up there after being thought to be Jiminy Cricket. I hop up on that stage and it takes all of 30 seconds for security to haul my ass off. Oh no! <laughs> and basically go, who are you and what the hell are you doing here? Oh my God! And so then phone calls. This is my first day at Disney. Oh my God, that's so, amazing. Uh, so phone calls have to be made. And uh, so anyway, long story short, one thing led to another. John and I moved to Florida in 1989. I became part of the Streetmosphere cast the first year of its existence at the GMGM Studios theme park. I wanted to be a traditions teacher because I was a Disnoid. I became a traditions teacher. I became a trainer then of the traditions teachers. Then I got on the board that got to reorganize traditions. Then I had to open the Disney Institute and work in customer service program. Then I got headhunted out, opened my own business, went back to Disney because I needed structure, left again, came back, left again, well, got kicked out at that time, uh, opened up one of the Harry Potter worlds. And then in the last few years, I've really been blessed with a great agent. And through them and their hard work, I've, up until this pandemic, I was up to doing more than 50 keynote talks a year. And then we, then we premiered my book in April and I was be doing a tour yeah so. yeah but you've been doing the lecturing i mean you and i met when i joined citizens of hollywood in 2011 so that yeah. that's not god we've known each other nine years jesus yeah um but yeah but you were doing these lecturing gigs it was kind of a little more of a side hustle for you yes at the yeah. time and you left not voluntarily um which happens to the best of us uh, that was when you really said this this thing on the side is now going to be the thing in the middle and to, it's, you know, it has to be first it has to be first yeah and it seems so that's like when i started dressing professionally when i got up every day. 
mm-hmm. and, and, and created it. Cause I'm, you know, I created structure and I'm like, I'm going to write this book. And again, I was very blessed to finally be hooked up with a great agent. I, I've been in show business a long time. How often does some, a client say to you, you know what? You have great agents. They're really classy and good to work with. Never. Yeah. And yeah. And so I, I have that group of people now and, uh, and they took me on when really it wouldn't make sense on paper to do it, but, uh, and the book is called Service is a Superpower? Is a superpower. Lessons Learned in a Magic Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And I heard you on a, a different podcast, uh, God, a couple years ago now. And you uh, were also doing a, a, a speech or a, I don't know what you would call it, but uh, you were also uh, touting the phrase, uh, there's no business but show business. Yes, one of the chapters is called that there's no, and one of my keynotes that you can book uh, David, <laughs> I can <laughs> I really? There's no business but show business. Again, the performance technique comes involved, which is why I am so proud of my my fellow Disney actors, the people that I've known for years, and how they have dealt with this massive blow. Mm. I am so impressed with how many of them, in the meantime, have taken jobs that they may or may not have considered beneath them or different or not part of their life plan. And they brought that same Disney performing ethic to these jobs. Mm-hmm. And, they're, and they're proving that what they learn, and this God knows, this is what I preach, the things that we learn being performers at Disney are absolutely applicable in any field. And these people get back to their performing jobs. But in the meantime, I think they're really experiencing what I talk about in the book about service being a superpower. You know, it's it's that same feeling of appreciation. You know, actors love applause and it's the same high. And which is why Mm -hmm. I think performers often are wonderful in the service industry because they have that need Mm -hmm. to be liked. They have that need for approval. They have that need you know, I'll, I'll get there. They, they have that need to be loved. And, yeah. And the need to put uh, on so a good I'm, show. I'm real proud of our fellow. I'm really proud of, our, of mm-hmm. our fellow Disney actors and how they've, how they're dealing with this really horrible, horrible, you know, and I get it. This was going to be the best financial year of my life. We <laughs> just, I mean, it was, I mean, yeah. I was, I, I, I was booked for, I mean, I was be doing more international work. I was supposed to go to Mexico. Mm. I was going to go back to Europe. I was going to, I mean, and in the twinkling of an eye. Yeah. Just, yep. It's, it's done. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I, I, again, I'm real proud of people that you and I both know how, mm-hmm. how wonderfully they're navigating through this really, yeah. and they're doing it through service. Mm-hmm. My point it made me so happy to watch your ascent into this uh again this this was you uh harnessing your superpowers as far as being a lecturer a teacher a mentor you certainly were that for me in the performance days uh at the early days of citizens so uh this will be back all of our friends jobs will be back and you'll be back at that podium we know it's just you just gotta hang on we all have to uh, you know Pull up in our the meantime, we have to bring excellence to whatever task gets in front of us. Mm-hmm. You know, it was exactly what I learned when suddenly I'm not on TV anymore and I'm waiting tables. It's like, what, what, what you know. I will definitely yeah. post links to where you can acquire Louis' book for my tens of listeners. Service is a superpower. Lessons learned in the kingdom. Is that the right title? 
Lessons learned in a magic kingdom. Lessons learned in a magic kingdom. And uh, yeah, and it's so great just to see you and to talk to you and to, you too. <laughs> to be a guest us babbling like like the old days, like back when we were in the trailer at Citizens, except yes. we, we, we don't have jobs to bitch about anymore. We've got this other, we don't know what going on. Well, Louie, it has been so great gabbing and seeing you and talking to you again. <laughs> But we do have a task at hand, and we have got to address the conundrum, the quandary of Mrs. Garrett and this late life return to college. Are we ready to jump back in? Yes. So we come back from commercial to Edna's Edibles. Tootie and Natalie, this is where we get the flimsy bee story. I mean, they are baking buffalo-shaped cakes, kangaroo-shaped quiches, Natalie is complaining and Tootie is pushing her to do it anyway because she wants to prove their creativity and competence since they are the ones now in charge of the store due to Mrs. Garrett's absence. This subplot, though, does provide the one really, really funny line in the whole thing. And that's when Tootie comes out with one of the horse or unicorn or whatever it is, yeah. cakes or cookies, and it's missing a leg. Yeah. And Mindy kind of goes, you want me to shoot it? <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, and I just, I'm sorry. It's sort of, a, they shoot horses, don't they? Kind of references. Yeah. I, I thought that was, the, that was the one point of the show where I threw my head back and laughed. Oh, cool. Why they're making them out of animals. Why, I, I don't really it's, understand why I, they're making them in the shapes of animals. Is that, was that established and I just didn't get it? No, it was just to, to, to point out their creativity or something. And Natalie even mm -hmm. says, um, do you want to maybe make some bread that's uh, round, you know, so that we can maybe operate that other thing over there called the cash register? Meaning this shit isn't selling. This is not mm -hmm. good for business. Right. But there's no real good button to this bit other than a moment that's coming up that uh, wasn't until the second. Cohen is the only one I think in the show that goes forth. You know, all the other actresses are completely sans irony and straight ahead. Mindy Cohn is the only one that you can kind of glimpse. She's like looking around going, okay, I know this is complete shit. I'm, yeah. well, I'm $20,000 a week, so buy me. <laughs> so Blair and Joe uh, come in. And uh, by the way, we there's one point I didn't make about the outfit Joe was wearing when they were in line to try and get the class. Mm. It was both denim jeans and a, a denim jacket, but not a suit per se, but they were both acid wash remember acid wash denim v vaguely i never <laughs> i never did it you that, that's i guess that's right that was like at its peak when i was in high school so it's it's probably something that you wouldn't have had any i didn't uh, do it mm -hmm. so now in this one blair comes in similar outfit in the earlier outfit uh blair had a, a sweater vest on over her dorothy michaels outfit well um now She's got the same type of a thing, but there's a blazer over it, and it could pass for preppy, but it is still that sort of boring Blair. How for how much money she has? I have said, that, particularly that totally no. That's how they make. That's totally because of her weight. That layered look is they're trying to hide. It's very self conscious, but they're they're. It's all designed to hide her weight. Yeah, oh, no, I agree. It's I've said before. It's how they dress Delta Burke on Designing Women. 
before they fired her. It was the same thing. It was like blouse, puffy sleeves, get accentuate the waist, A-line skirt, but and then a big fair, bow here. Distract. Blair was not too fat. No. It was a terrible thing. You know, I mean, she was a healthy looking girl and they should not have, you know, made it. She was still a very, very pretty girl. So it's a, that's sort of where I come up with the whole bulimia thing. It, it's, yeah. You know, whole, and you know, and but, I don't think, I don't even perceive her to be even slightly heavy in this. But at one time in the show, when she was heavy, this is how they started costuming her. And I feel like they just never got out of the habit. They just said, oh, this is what we put her in. We don't, we don't know how to dress her when her weight's down. Mm -hmm. And my argument is the opportunity they missed with her being so rich. She could have been wearing really high-end, fashionable day wear, and it could have been made appropriate for whatever size she was. They could have really said, you know, we're going to do something really interesting here with a girl who is not 90 pounds and still make her look fantastic and stylish due to her wealth. They could have so done something with that, but it's a sitcom. My expectations are too high. Plus, all that stuff had to be shopped, and it had to be shopped quick, and it had to be shopped every week. They didn't, they weren't really making those costumes. Some, as I recall, somebody would run out and like, yeah, they'd run to the Kmart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know, they had a budget. They'd run out, and somebody it was, there was somebody. That's all they did was run around and yeah. And they do recycle outfits. You do see them. That is, that's one nice thing, like compared to Sex in the City, where they're. We're four struggling career gals, but we have a different pair of $400 shoes every week. Right. But Joe is wearing cargo pants. Like you wanna turn the lesbo meter up another tick. We now have cargo pants and another denim jacket that has some solid panels on it. It's not the same acid wash denim jacket that she had on before. And now that the hair has come down, the clothes are like, okay, well, if we don't have a ponytail to telegraph the lesbianism, we certainly need to use the clothing and the costuming to do that. Let me tell you something. And in a sitcom like that, there is not one frame that isn't overthought. Mm -hmm. So not one single frame. So I would have been fascinated by the discussions that were going on because they were saying, clearly, is, is she a lesbian? Is she not a lesbian? We don't want to hit it too hard, but we want to make, you know, there must have been discussion after discussion and what drove it was it always a piece of, of of the subplot or did they or did they hire an actress where it was the gorilla in the room like that you know she was a this was her energy that she had this tomboy energy she had this lesbian energy and did they go with it or did they cast her for that reason but but you know that this was something that was discussed a lot as much I, as the weight issue this was would have been not one I, denim jacket would have been thrown on without a, a committee. <laughs> and I wish they might have given the same amount of care and concern to the pages in the script because of how often there's an absence of a show Bible and there's this lack of uh, logical connectivity. Mrs. Garrett comes in just as Joe and Blair are filling in Tootie and Natalie about some silly things she said in class. Somebody mentioned Culture Club and Mrs. Garrett didn't know that Culture Club wasn't an actual club. And so they're laughing and we, Mrs. Garrett comes in and is kind of trying to laugh along, but you can tell how uncomfortable she is. Read the room, girls. 
And this is where the, isn't that cute? Oh no, it was fine. You, you, oh, you didn't embarrass yourself in class. You were so cute. And Mrs. Garrett even does say, cute isn't what I was going for. Mm -hmm. And the scene just kind of ends with, clearly Mrs. Garrett still ain't sure she's going to cut it. First of all, it's just very, as you pointed out earlier, I mean, she got frustrated very, very early. I mean, come on. I mean, it's just, you know, your first day. And on the other hand, what bitches? <laughs> yes, <girls>. exactly. <laughs> For all the support it's she's just, given but, you. But, what thoughtless little bitches and yeah. and again i'm gonna go back and it sounds like i'm really hammering on blair because i am because i always thought she was a bitch <laughs> um but she's the most condescending of all yeah just the most and again that's when charlotte ray turns around and gives her that look like i could totally cut you and <laughs> and I'm, I'm wondering if there was like a real dynamic there <laughs> that's something that they experienced i don't perceive between so. those two actresses i i don't believe there was that's one good thing is you hear that there was not it was not a, a fraught set that they did all get along um so moving on to the next scene now this is where we once again stray from the typical format and aesthetic of the show and we have something very different going on here mrs garrett is alone in the shop at that front table after hours hitting the books and uh while she is there hitting the books, we hear her inner thoughts as a voiceover. Yeah. Does that happen often? Never been done before. The soliloquy. Never been done before. Or is that a nod to Shakespeare? Is that sort of some, some sort of nod? Is that some sort of Shakespearean nod that she's looking in <sighs> and this sort of monologues going on about and what must I do? <laughs> yeah, I mean, possibly. You almost wish it had been, I mean, there are points where you hear her in her thoughts and then she's like, all right, Edna, let's buckle down. You can do this. So she does speak out loud to herself as well. I'm with you. I wish this had been a monologue slash soliloquy all completely in her head. Because one of the things she says out loud when she goes over to the counter is she says, why is that raisin bread in the shape of a buffalo? Mm -hmm. that that is what you say out loud that's what you think i'm like that there's no reason that couldn't have been part of the internal monologue mm -hmm. but anyway so but it's nonetheless i don't know if they ever do it again if they do they don't do it frequently it's not like a regular uh device they use so that's new and the other thing is because it's a fairly static shot of her just sitting there at one point she goes up and gets herself a cup of coffee and sits down again but uh this another is a, cup of coffee and she says it's late at night and i just thought and she's having another cup of coffee on a school night but go i on. know what is that about <laughs> but this is a, a nod to our again new director john boab because this static shot he makes interesting by moving the camera sideways along what do you call that is it's not a pan is it it's a it goes on the tra it's a tracking shot. Oh, there it is. Yes, tracking shot. And basically it's called that because the typically the, the camera is on an actual track and it moves. In the world of sitcoms, the cameras are already on wheels and move around like little, little bumper cars. So he starts the camera on one side with her center in the frame. And while the scene is going on, it just slowly moves around her and, and just gives the shot more visual interest, a little bit of energy, and it keeps it from being just static and dull and boring. 
And that's not something we've ever seen done on the show before. Typically, they would have just said, nope, plop her down, plop the camera on her, have a cut to close up and have a, have a wide shot. That's what it typically would have been. So this was interesting, too. I thought it was an interesting shot and, and, and actually a strangely classy moment for a sitcom of that era. Yeah, it, it, it was very polished looking. And that's not typically a word I attribute to this show. But Mrs. Garrett, the, the talk is about her being nervous about this oral exam the next day and having to speak in front of the class and what to wear. And uh, it doesn't really end on any particular note. And then uh, that's when I looked at it and I thought I noticed that there was very little time left in the episode. And I was starting to think, so how I got it? They're going to need to wrap this up real quick. Yeah. And there's still quite a bit that happens here. Uh, but um, oh, I was just saying the scene didn't end with anything in particular. That's because another uh, uncommon uh, uh, technical thing in the show was a jump cut where we just go boom straight into the next scene. Uh, typically, they would, you know, have her walk out of the room, a slow fade, a dissolve, students coming into the classroom and him beginning the class. But instead, while she is still thinking about what's going to be happening in class the next day, we jump cut to a medium close-up of Professor Ryan. He's bent over his podium. His hands are under his face, so he's leaning over on his hands. And very quickly as he talks, he turns. And we realize the podium is on wheels and he is bent over and walking this podium all around the class, ambulatory lecturing. And it's pretty funny. It's visually successful as a sight gag. And mm -hmm. I think it adds to the, the benevolent quirkiness of this character. I was like, it's successful. Yeah. Wow. Successful. Yeah. I was impressed at how much that bought them in such a simple move again. I think this is this is clearly why they went, this John Boab guy, I think we need to have him working here more. So through this class, Mrs. Garrett recites something to him. She recites some of the Shakespeare. He's impressed. Mrs. Garrett's string of pearls breaks. And while they're all uh, down on the floor picking up the pearls, he gets down on the floor to ask Joe the next question. He steps over Mrs. Garrett. They're keeping the physicality going of him not being... Uh, traditional, conventional lecturer, professor. And then Edna responds to something that he says uh, with more of another quote. And then he comes at her saying, you know, this class isn't just to memorize and regurgitate. These are living, breathing, dramatic characters. If you, if you read it again, you might understand it better. And again, Mrs. Garrett, by one criticism, is just devastated. And she says, I, I did understand it. At least I thought I did this morning when I was in the shower. But, but that was an unnecessary thing for him to say, really. It was a really rather bitchy thing to say because this old woman, is she proved that she, one minute it looks like he's going to praise her because she knew the line and like, you're really improving. Okay, you're getting into this. And then he goes, I'll bitch on her the next, you know, the, the, like in front of everybody. Yeah, maybe we should all go into your shower. Is that what we're saying? Is that what we yeah, need to do for real, this class? It isn't real. I don't want to use the word that comes to mind, but it's uh, it's bitchy. <laughs> but um, anyway, the scene ends with her slinking back down into her chair, still devastated and defeated. And then finally, we get to the last scene of the show. And uh, we're back at the shop. More silly nothingness over Tootie and these fucking animal bread quiches and pastries. It's so 
freaking ridiculous. Finally, we connect our B story and our A story when Natalie brings out some type of a mold and she says to the mold, now Mrs. Garrett says you have 10 minutes and then you have to come out. Come out, Joe. What is that? I didn't understand what that meant anyway. It well, the reason that she says that, meaning it, it's you know, it's being unmolded, it's probably like a gelatin or a frozen yeah. custard thing, but you need to set, but Natalie sets the timer. So yes. with the timer being set, we have a moment later where the timer comes back. I'll I'll bring you to there. It needs to get melty, but not too unmelty or something. Uh, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, all right, all right, but yeah. So Mrs. Garrett is outraged because there's a very high bill from the freezer repairman. And just as Blair and Joe come in. Uh, and we never establish whose fault that is. Whose fault is the freezer bill? Is, is this because of the buffalo cookies? I mean, what 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 has shot the electricity bill up so quickly and immediately? You, you are right to wonder why there isn't more connection there. It's not there. <laughs> what I think they're trying to do is... Uh, remember, it's because the bill is is an outrageous eighty seven dollars and fifty cents. What Mrs. Right. Garrett does is, I think she uses that as the last straw, because when Blair and Joe come in, she says, "Well, I'm going to go return my textbooks, and the money I get back on them is probably going to just about cover this." So I think it's just to give her one more reason to be like, "Yeah, the the school thing is not for me. I need to focus on the business and the money that I'm spending," and it's it's. I'm giving them a lot of credit there. I'm yeah, okay. connecting a lot of dots. I, I'm aware. But um, by the way, when Blair and Joe come in, Joe is wearing a, a an amazing shirt. She wore it. Um, she actually wore it last week. It's a gray shirt with rolled up sleeves and a panel over the front that covers. It's like a built in tie tack for the yes. man tie that she has tied around her neck, this black tie. Um, Somebody thought long and hard about that outfit. Somebody thought damn. long and hard. <laughs> Again, it's, there was nothing accidental about that. Yeah, we it's have just butch enough, but yet not so much that we have to talk about it. <laughs> it's yeah, it is. No, no, you are so right. It is like, but we have like, we have three, the comedy rule of threes. We have three severely exceptionally lesbotastic outfits on joe this week they're they're hitting that hard mm -hmm. yes but true. blair on the other hand a common thing we see with the lousy costuming louis is blair comes in same skirt same you know thing she's wearing a short sleeve blouse everybody in this entire episode has been in long sleeves and or jackets and or sweaters and or coats why is Blair walking around in a short sleeve blouse? She doesn't have a coat or a wrap or anything. It's like, that is a summer shirt. This episode broadcast on Halloween. This is not anything remotely pleasant non-jacket weather in the Northeast. Just got to okay. say that. These are the things that keep me awake at night, Louie. Okay. <laughs> All right. So then this final scene, we have a lot. To cover where Mrs. Garrett saying that she's going to return the books, get her money back, quit school. The girls are like, what? And so Mrs. Garrett says, I got to focus on the business. I got to do this. And they say, you're giving up your education? And I'm like, she is a successful businesswoman already. It's not like this is the key to her improved future. She's already lived a thousand lives as far as you girls are concerned. And an RN. 
Yeah, and a, and a nurse, yeah. Finally, she just says, I don't think I can do it. And we have often talked about how Mrs. Garrett is a perfect person, how this character uh, often doesn't show flaws or, or cracks in the facade. And this is really a lovely little speech where she says, over the years, I didn't think of myself as changing that much. But when I go into the classroom and I see all the young kids there, I don't feel like I belong. And she says, teaching methods have changed and they're so different. And I just feel so uncomfortable. I don't know if you, like me, thought she was going to say old. She stopped yes. short of saying old, but she just says uncomfortable. And then the girls say, you really should stick it out. And she says, I don't know if it's worth it. I don't like doubting myself. I'm not as sharp. My memory doesn't seem to be as good. I wanted it so much, but maybe I waited too long. Mm -hmm. And we are dancing around this word old. And part of me was like, why didn't they just say it? But I'm like, that's kind of nice character wise. So it's pretty much decided. And so the girls give some wonderful counsel to Mrs. Garrett. This is nice to have them giving advice to her. And they're saying, stick with it. You got to give yourself a chance. And then the final words that Joe says, it's your decision. We just want you to be happy. And then that moment is broken with the ringing of the timer that Natalie set. And it rings until Mrs. Garrett goes and turns it off, even though it's like an egg timer. But the idea is... Mrs. Garrett even says, my timer, and has to walk out of the room, go in to the kitchen or go over to the pastry or whatever it is. But the idea that this is the only slight connection between A story and B story is that the timer Natalie said earlier, we now have this moment of, is her time up? Mm -hmm. And I liked that. It's an unusually well-written script for what yeah. is often a horrible show. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> totally agreed. So then um, Mrs. Garrett kind of being like, okay, well, that decision seems to be made and she's got to get back to work now. Blair and Joe are like, well, we have to, uh, have you have you done that last thing we're doing tomorrow about Macbeth? And she's like, no. So they sit down and start reading through some of the Scottish play, right. Macbeth. And so as Blair starts reading the famous passage, the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day. Uh, Mrs. Garrett starts uh, lip syncing along. She knows this by heart. And so slowly Mrs. Garrett stops frosting this pastry or whatever she's doing and slowly walks over to the table, takes her place, sits down next to them and puts on her reading glasses. And uh, the decision has been reversed now. And Blair and Joe just look at her and smile, and they keep on reading all together, enjoying their Shakespeare. End of episode. That's an unusually nuanced uh, wrap-up for, again, any sitcom of that period, but especially one that had kids. I really liked it. It was nice, and it wasn't a, so you're going to do it after all? Yes, I am! Right. Thank God they right. didn't do no, that. It, no, it's like I said, it's strangely nuanced. Mm -hmm. Yes, and um, I had thought one of the one of the filters through which I watched this episode was that I thought, oh, Mrs. Garrett wants to go back to school. Here's another thing that is going to be touched upon and then promptly abandoned to never be discussed again. 
But it turns out it is mentioned in the season six finale and it maybe does come up. I just haven't seen these shows in so many years now. Mm. At the season six finale, she does say, I am going back to school now. I had wanted to go back to school and I am in the process of doing that. So they do make a future reference that that this sticks, or at least sticks till the end of the season. So good for them. I'm mm. still not really quite sure why she's doing it as far as... Yeah. If I were you, and I'm I'm practical to a fault, you know me, I'm not as emotionally driven as I am practicality driven, but my thought is like, yeah, you want to do this, but you also have a business that is at the moment dependent upon students who are your friends, but they're not necessarily going to be here forever. You need to build up your business and start thinking about what is your long-term staffing situation going to be in order to make sure the business is sustainable after they all leave school and go on to their lives and careers. Mm -hmm. Before I send you on your way, Louie, the last thing I always like to do is I like to say, name a commercial from your childhood that sticks out in your memory, completely random off the top of your head. It was for creepy crawlers. And I, it was, it was, you know, I, I was still of the age where they used to sell kids electrical toys, like wood burning sets. Oh my God. Forms and things that would heat up and you'd melt plastic. Oh my God. And, and we had these toys called creepy crawlers where you'd put the plastic goop in these metal things and you'd literally heat it up until it made the rubber harden. And then you'd take, you had, this is children's toy. Then you'd take these hot metal blocks out with this fork and you'd put it in this hot water which would bring the temperature down and then it would completely harden the rubber toy that you just created. And I can only imagine the fingers that were burned to a singe <laughs> with that toy because I'm... How many lawsuits? So anyway, yeah, that's, that's what... Yeah, yeah, there, there you go. Creepy crawlies. I, that does sound vaguely familiar. There, yeah, there might have been uh, creepy crawlers. That, there yeah. may have been a 1970s version of that. Oh. Louie, this has been so much fun. I'm the one that asked you if I could be on your show because we have a, I have a friend, Bruce, who adores your show so much. And he oh, goes, that's right. Our mutual fan. Show? And I go, well, Dave and I have been friends forever, so I'm going to be totally lame and I'm going to contact David and say, hey, yeah. And you were very gracious about it. So no, it's I, really fun to participate. Oh, well, I'm glad you had a good time. And yeah, I was thrilled when you contacted me because I I promise you, listen to, we're recording this uh, on Saturday, December 5th. The episode that just dropped this previous Wednesday was with Andrea Canny. And in it, she and I both talk about you and your husband, John, in the commercials that we grew oh, up with. We, we talked weird. about both of you and I was like, I need to get them on the show. I need to do it. So you oh, had cool. just been on my mind. It's crazy. So, Louie, uh, I'm going to send you on your way. This has been so great. Thank you again for doing the show. Smooches, my dear, and goodbye. Thank you, dear. Wow. Miss you. Good, good to talk with you. Oh, miss you too. <laughs> and there you have it. That was Louis Gravance. This is a long episode, but uh, so much happens. There's a lot to discuss, and it was actually nice to point out how much we enjoyed about the episode. I'm just going to go on record saying that I believe the words symbolic, subtle, polished, and nuanced were used to describe this episode. And we know on this podcast that doesn't happen that often. So I'm very, very pleased to be able to give an episode the props it deserves. 
Kudos to Mr. John Boab and the new direction this show seems to be taking. Now, only one correction here is uh, I referred to there being a jump cut in the show. What I meant was a hard cut when we went from one scene to the professor teaching the class. A jump cut is a different thing. That's an artistic thing used in French New Wave cinema back in the 50s. And uh, if you want to look that up, you can. But I meant a hard cut. I have a degree in cinema. I do know the difference. I just don't have (laughs) the words or the memory anymore, it seems. Be sure to check out the website. I will post videos of Louis' commercials and TV appearances, as well as information about how you can check out his book, Service is a Superpower, and where you can order that, as well as his website where you can find out about his keynote speeches. Now, next week, I'm going to be watching Season 6, Episode 9, Dear Apple, And of course, I will have another very special guest. You can watch the show for free at dailymotion.com. Check out the link in the show notes and on this show's webpage. That's all for now. Thank you so much, as always, for listening to this week's show. And remember, the facts of life are all about you. Let's Face the Facts was created, produced, written, hosted, and edited by me, David Almeida. My theme song was beautifully arranged and recorded by Ned Wilkinson. Visit my website, facethefactspod.com, for supplemental photos and videos, audio extras from the digital cutting room floor, links to my social media, and ways that you can support the show financially. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in again next week for another thrilling episode of Let's Face the Facts.